Well, I, I know that it's not football season, it's basketball season, as some of you may have known something about last night. But I think you would agree with me that American football is the greatest sport of all. If you're with me, would you say amen? I'm a little surprised. That was a pretty shallow amen right there. Well, while I would say that American football is the greatest sport of all, I think you would all agree with me that it is certainly, in all likelihood, at least in this part of the world, it is uh, a violent sport, maybe the most violent sport that there is. I mean, there aren't a lot of sports where the intention is that you run at full speed and on purpose collide with another person running at full speed. It happens in all sports from time to time, but it's not the object of the game in most other sports. Football is intended to be explosive. I remember on more than one occasion when I grew up playing youth league ball and high school ball, more than once I remember a coach taking a you know, a, a lineman, an offensive lineman and his defensive counterpart who were just coming off the line of scrimmage sort of playing patty cake. And he would put them out in the middle of the field and say, look, we came here to hit, not dance. If you're going to dance, go ahead and assume the position. And I've seen linemen dancing because the coach made them uh, dance because that's apparently what they came for. It, it's, it's a sport where, where people get hammered. You know, uh, uh, a, uh, an open field tackle or a quarterback sack or the, or the most dangerous of all, a receiver stretching out to catch a pass thrown just beyond his reach and he is just the prime target for that defensive uh, defender. It's a violent sport. Now, for all of you who are moms of Little League players who are now considering whether or not or reconsidering whether or not you're going to let your little ones play this fall, you can, you can be grateful that in, you know, over the years, uh, Little Leagues and parents and officials uh, have made a lot of changes to the game and they've improved equipment and they've changed rules and, and there are very, very few serious injuries these days. And that's, that's a good thing. But it, it wasn't always like that. Uh, in fact, did you know that in the early days of collegiate football, it was a common occurrence for players to receive traumatic brain injuries, uh, to be crippled permanently? In fact, in 1905, in college football in America, there were two dozen deaths of players who died on the field in college football in 1905. You say, what in the world was going on back in 1905? Why were so many players getting hurt and killed? Here's why. Because they played the game in those years, do you know? Without a helmet. They did. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine now, but they would go out on the field and they would hit as hard as we hit today, and they were doing so without a helmet. It wasn't until 1939 that helmets were made mandatory in college football. I think you would agree with me that if you're going to play football, a helmet is a pretty important piece of equipment, right? It really is. Well, it's not only an important piece of equipment for a football player, but it is, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, an important piece of equipment for the Christian. 
for the Christian warrior. Somewhere in your notes, I want you to write it down. Today we're going to be talking about the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Today we are coming to week number five of six. We're almost finished working through the different parts or the different pieces of the Christian armor. For the last five Sundays, we've been talking about how it is that we can armor up. And we have been considering in each of these weeks five different, or today we'll consider the fifth, these individual pieces of armor that every Christian needs to put on. We talked a few weeks ago when we began this series in verse number 14 of Ephesians 6 about the belt of truth. That was the first piece of armor, the belt of truth. Do you remember it? We need to live with truthfulness, wrapping truthfulness and authenticity around our lives. In the second week, we talked about uh, the breastplate of righteousness in verse number 14, that we are to choose to live with righteousness. In week number three, we talked about the sandals of peace. The sandals of peace, that is to have our feet firmly rooted in the gospel and therefore to live with peace because we are firmly rooted in the gospel. And then last week we talked about the shield of faith. So we've covered this belt of truth, this breastplate of righteousness, these shoes of peace and this shield of faith and today we're talking about the helmet of salvation. Now when you put all of those together what you'll discover is that we are fully armored. When we are wearing these five pieces of armor, we are fully armored. Today we will conclude considering all of the defensive or protective pieces of armor. Next week we'll wrap up with the singular piece of the warrior's outfitting, which is offensive. Everything else is defensive, Next week, we'll consider the sword of the Spirit, which Paul says is the Word of God. That's offensive, but this helmet of uh, salvation that we're considering today is that final piece of defensive armor. Now, I hope you remember as we've worked through this that we've talked about the fact that obviously these pieces of armor are not actual, literal pieces of armor. I know that you know that, but you'll recall that we've learned that each of these pieces are representative of the character or the nature of Christ. And it reminds us that we are to hide ourselves in Christ every single day. Day. We had a really great discussion in our life group, uh, Tracy and I lead a life group in our home, and we, we had a wonderful discussion about uh, how we put this armor on in practical terms. I mean, what does it look like in practical terms every single day to, to put each piece of armor on? And that discussion was helpful to me, and it was helpful to those in our group. I hope you've had similar discussions like that uh, in your life group as well. If you're not in a life group, you ought to get in one so that you can have those similar discussions and and learn how to apply these truths to our lives. Now, the last thing I would say about just what we've learned in the past few weeks, just by way of review, is to remind you of what is the purpose of the armor. Can I say it again? I've said it every week, I think, but I don't want you to forget it. The armor has one purpose. It is a singularly focused reasoning that you should put on the armor. And you'll see it in Ephesians chapter 6 in verse number 12 and verse number uh, 13, verse 14, verse 11, 
where he says, the reason that you should put the armor on is so that you may, shout it out, why you may, that's it, yeah, stand. You, you weren't quite certain with the way you said that, but you're right, that you may stand. The only reason that we are to put the armor on is so that at the end of the day, we will still be standing for Jesus. And the implication is if I'm not wearing the armor, I'm going to fall. If I'm not walking daily in the armor of God, I'm going to lose the battle. I'm going to fall victim. I'm not going to stand in the gospel. I'm not going to stand in the faith. And, uh, and I'm not going to stand for Christ. So put on the armor that you might stand. Okay? So today we're thinking in verse number 17, look at it, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 17, having learned about the belt and the breastplate and the sandals and the shield, today we come to the helmet. Look at it. Verse 17 says, and take or take unto yourself or put on the helmet of salvation. Put on the helmet of salvation. Now, more than any football player, as I was describing earlier, more than any football player needs a good helmet. The Christian warrior needs a good helmet. And Paul is using this metaphor, extending this metaphor of the Roman soldier and his helmet, even in verse number 17 today. He, he's, he's thinking about the fact that no Roman soldier would ever go out into battle without not only his belt and his shoes and his breastplate and his shield, but he's always going to be wearing that helmet. It's going to come over his head and, and down around his jaws and, and, and maybe even a piece down over the bridge of his nose. And all that you can really see is his eyes. His head is covered. And the reason that that Roman soldier needed to have his head covered is because his head was a constant target. Now think with me about this. Think about the weapons that a Roman soldier would encounter when he would go into battle. Last week we talked about arrows flying at him. Uh, he would need his head protected from those arrows. But he also faced javelins, spears that, that would be thrown, or javelins or spears that would be used at a long distance that could reach to his head he would encounter swords in close hand-to-hand -hand combat. These soldiers facing swords that are swinging for their head. Do you know what he would also face in Paul's area there in the Middle East? You know what he would face? Rocks, stones. You know what the Bible talks about stoning somebody to death? Do you know why when you watch the news sometimes, even today, you'll see people throwing rocks at soldiers? You know why they do that in the Middle East? Because there's a lot of them. <laughs> there's stones. If you've been there, you know there are stones everywhere in that land. So a Roman soldier didn't have to just worry about spears and swords and arrows. There would be rocks being pelted uh, at him as well. His head was always a target. Now, if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Because if you're in a battle, if you break your arm, well, you're limited, but you're still in the fight. If, if you're wounded in the leg, you, your, your effectiveness as a soldier might be limited, but you can still do battle if you're in, injured in the leg. Somebody can punch you in the gut or, or even dislocate your joints, but if any of those things happen, you can continue to fight. But if you're wounded in the head, 
mortally for sure, but even if you're just severely wounded in the head, you are absolutely finished. You're out of the game. You're out of the battle. And what's true for a Roman soldier is true for a Christian soldier as well. It's true for a Christian as well. In the same way that a Roman soldier's head was always a target in the battle, your head is a target. And I want to explain to you how that's the case. Would you write this down in your notes somewhere? I don't want you to forget this. It is that the enemy of your soul is engaged in a constant battle for your mind. This is why your head is the target. The enemy of your soul is engaged in a constant battle for your mind. The word mind is found in the Bible hundreds of times, certainly well over 100 times, about 150, 160 times. You'll find this word mind. And the word means simply our understanding. It's what goes on between our ears. It's how we think or how we perceive life or God or our relationship with God or our circumstances or the world. It is our understanding, our intellect, or our way of thinking. And here is an undeniable fact of life. The way that you think will determine the way that you live. I'm going to let that settle, and I'm going to say it again. It's absolutely true. The way that we think determines the way that we live. Listen to what the Bible says about this. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 27. For as a man thinks within himself, so is he. My thinking determines my actions. The way that my mind goes, my body will follow. The way that my mind perceives what my mind perceives to be true will direct my attitudes and my actions. The how I relate to my spouse, how I relate to my kids, how I live in this world, what I value, what my priorities are. All of these things are determined by the way that I think. And because of that, the Bible constantly is telling us, warning us, that we ought to guard our mind. In fact, you're in Ephesians 6. Why don't you hold your finger there? Turn back to Romans chapter number 12. It's, I mean, it's not far at all, right in front of 1 Corinthians. Go to Romans chapter 12. Let me show you what Paul says about the mind in verse 2. Now, most of you know verse number 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. This is your reasonable service. It's your act of worship. That's verse 1. We know that verse, but listen to verse 2. Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world. Now, that's, a, that's an, action ver, an action word, right? Don't be conformed to the world. Don't live like the world lives. Well, how can I not be conformed to the world? Well, I need to be transformed. My life should look differently than the world's, those lives in the world looks. Well, how can my, how's my life going to be transformed? Verse number two, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Your, your life will change, listen, your life will change as your mind is changed. Your life will transform as your thinking is renewed. And as our thinking is renewed, then, verse 2, we can live a life which will demonstrate, do you see it in verse 2? That you may prove or demonstrate what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It means that, that you could live a life that will be a demonstration of this fact, that living for God Living in the will of God is good and it's right and it's perfect. This is the way to live. And so how can I live a life that when people look at my life, my priorities, my values, my, my uh, uh, choices and decisions, they will say, that's a good way to live. That will happen as my mind is renewed and my life, my actions follow my mind. If y'all tracking with me, would you say amen? The way that you think will determine the way that you live. Colossians chapter three and verse two says this, if you've been risen with Christ, set your mind on the things of Christ. Set your mind on those things which are above. Philippians chapter four and verse number eight says, finally brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever things are excellent or praiseworthy, think, on these things. Do you see this? It's only, what, four verses I've given you. I could give you dozens where the Bible says, be careful about the way you think. Guard your mind because there's a battle for how you think. And the way that you think is going to determine the way that you live. So here's the fact. Why is Satan engaged in a battle for your mind? Here's why. He wants to control the way that you think. Because if he controls the way that you think, then to a large degree, he will determine the way that you live. And if he determines the way that you live, listen carefully, he will then control the direction and the impact, the effectiveness of your life. He can't take your salvation away, but he wants to limit your effectiveness for Jesus while you're here, limit your joy. And so if he can take your mind and cause you to think in wrong ways, then he is to a large degree controlling or influencing the course of your life. Every Christian needs to understand we are in a battle for our minds. Now, you're in Romans 12, and so you're very close to Corinthians, and I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. Let me show you this battle that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where he talks to us about the battle for our minds. Look at it, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number three. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. What, what do you mean war? We, you mean we're in a battle? Yeah, we're in a battle. That's why you need armor, right? So he says, look, I'm living in the flesh, but I, I don't want to fight in the flesh. I'm in a battle, so I need to have on the armor. What, what's this battle look like? He says, verse 4, we have weapons. Every warrior has weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Everybody listen. Here's what I want you to know. That you can win the battle. If you believe it, say amen. amen. Tell your neighbor, you can win. Tell them, you can win. You can win. Because the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly or, or carnal. They're mighty in God. They are mighty. And they will pull down the strongholds that Satan erects. 
The word stronghold means a fortress, a, 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 a foothold, a, 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 a fortress where Satan can get into our lives, get into our minds, and, and take his place there. And Paul says in this passage that you need to war in a way that you will be able to pull down those strongholds, those, those fortresses. Well, how does he do it? How does Satan get these fortresses in our mind? Well, look at verse number five. He talks about imaginations. Now, the King James uses the word imaginations, but the word means false reasoning. False reasoning. Um, believing what is not true. Uh, another way to say it would be lies. Believing lies. It's this, these, these speculations that he puts in our minds. These imaginations, that's the first thing. Secondly, he says, and every high thing, every high thing or every lofty thought, lofty idea that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Oh, listen, listen, listen to me. He says what Satan wants to do, how he engages in the battle in your mind is he causes you to think in ways that are not correct and then those thoughts begin to rise up and they begin to take precedence over. They begin to rise higher than and execute authority over what is really true in the knowledge of God. Imaginations... And every high thing or lofty idea that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. He goes on to say in verse number five, bringing into captivity every thought. The word thought simply means what you think it means. Perceptions of the mind. The way that I'm thinking. Now listen, he says that what Satan wants to do, the reason or the way that he's battling against your mind is that he's going to cause you to think things that aren't true. Those lofty lies are going to rise up and oppose what is true, the knowledge of God, and they are going to be thoughts that will be fortified in your mind. Now here's what he says, you got to pull those things down, man. You, you've got to use spiritual warfare to pull those thoughts down and to take your mind, your thinking, captive. Take your thinking captive to the obedience of Christ. He says that Satan raises these arguments up against Christ, against Christians. Now, how does he do that? Because you would think, I mean, you're talking about talking about a follower of Jesus, right? Somebody who knows Christ as their Savior, and yet somehow there's a fortress in their mind of lies. There's, there, there's a, a bulwark in their mind of, of lofty ideas that are standing in opposition to Christ. How does that happen? Let me suggest three ways that he does it. Jot these down somewhere in your notes. First of all, the enemy brings these attacks against the mind of a Christian by reminding us of our past. He reminds us of our past. Every person in this room has a past. We all have a history. And Satan, even though we have been delivered from our past, listen carefully, we've been set free from the past. We, we've, we've moved beyond the past in the grace of God. Satan won't let it go. He's going to keep bringing it up. And he does it in different ways for different people. 
Sometimes it's like Lot's wife. Sometimes there's a temptation for us to be looking back to the past, to, to longing for the pleasure the temporary pleasure of sin for a season. And he brings it up to entice us back, like he did the Israelites when he drew their hearts back to Egypt and the, and the food and the good dainties they had in Egypt. Sometimes it's that kind of bringing up our past. Sometimes it's, he, he brings up the past like he did to Paul, and he reminds us of our sin and how that we had so offended God, and he shames us and guilts us with that. Sometimes he brings up our past bondage, like I'm sure he did with Mary Magdalene and reminded her of her days as a demon-possessed woman and that life. Sometimes he brings up our past like he did to Peter in John 21 after Peter's failure. And he says to us, you were a failure, you are a failure, you'll never be anything but a failure. But this is the way he does it. Some, some of you are wrestling right now with your past. And I want to tell you, Christ has delivered you, but Satan is trying to put a stronghold in your life by bringing your past up. Okay, That's the one way he does it. Another way that he attacks our mind is he exaggerates our fears. He exaggerates our fears. He causes us to live with doubts. He he. He causes us to doubt the goodness of God or to doubt God's grace in our lives or the ability or the desire that God would have to ever use us. And he exaggerates our fears. He makes the monsters of our childhood now the monsters of our adulthood. And he exaggerates our fears. And the third way that he attacks our minds is that he obscures our blessings. He causes us to forget God's goodness. And really, I mean... The third one comes pretty naturally, right? If he's, if he's always reminding us of our past and if he's always exaggerating our fears, well, the natural result is if I'm only focused on my past and I'm only thinking about my fears, then the blessings of God I'm forgetting. And so that one is pretty easy for him. So Christian friend, hear me. This is what Satan wants to do. It's what he will do until you go to heaven. He is going to attack your mind. He is going to seek to cause you to live in bondage to your past. He's going to exaggerate your fears. He's going to obscure the blessings of God so that you will have, or that he will have a foothold in your life and these lies will stand up against the truth of who, whose you are and who you are in Christ. This is what he does. Now, by the way, I should also say that if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never put your personal faith in Christ for forgiveness, you need to know that Satan is battling in your mind as well. You know, if you're not a Christian, don't be sitting here this morning thinking, well, you know what, all those Christians, they're having to fight the devil, but not me because I'm not doing that deal. Like, I'm not following Christ, so that's not an issue for me. You don't understand if you've never given your heart to Christ, largely it is because of Satan's working in your mind. Can I show it to you? You're in 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. Why don't you just look quickly to chapter 4? Just a few pages. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to what Paul said about this in verse number 3. 2 Corinthians 4.3 says, But if our gospel... 
If the gospel is hidden, it's hidden to them that are lost. Now, if you don't know Christ, that's you. Lost describes those who don't know Jesus. If our gospel's hid, it's hidden to them that are lost. In whom, that is in the lives of the lost, the God of this world, that's Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. Listen to me. If you don't know Jesus, Satan has blinded you to the good grace of Jesus Christ. He wants you to walk in blindness. Blind to the gift of salvation. Blind to your need of salvation. Blind to how, to, to how wonderful and blessed life can be in Christ. Blind to an eternity with God in heaven. He's blinded you so that, the verse goes on to say, the, the light of the glorious gospel would not shine to you. Do you understand? God is shining his light like a big flashlight of mercy to you. And Satan's working in your mind to blind you to it. It's what he does. It's a battle for the mind. Can I give you one other group that Satan seeks to battle their minds? It's your children. It's our grandchildren. Satan wants to blind the minds of children. Two verses I won't ask you to turn to them. Maybe make a note. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, which talks about the fact that it's the foundation of all things Judeo-Christian. Deuteronomy 6 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There's only one God. There aren't many gods. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God. And then verse 7 he says this, and these truths, these sayings, these teachings, that God is one and you're to love him with everything in you, including your mind, you, if y'all are listening, shout amen. amen, you shall teach to your children. When you're in the house, when you're in the pathway, when you're at work, when you're in the field, in everything that you do, you teach your children to low and love God. Proverbs 22.6, most of you know it. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. Do you know what the word train means? It means as if you're growing a tree and you tie its branches in one direction so that it'll grow that way. That's what it means to train them. It means to bend their twig, point them toward Christ. Parent, that, that's your job. Christian parent, that's what you're to do. And here's what you need to know. Everything in this culture is arrayed to change the minds of your children from what you're teaching them. You send them to school, much of what happens in school is to change their mind from what you're teaching them. They turn on the television, you sit them in front of a television and it's a great babysitter for hours a day and all of the messages they're hearing, or most all of them anyway, are an attempt to change their mind. You, um, you, you send them, you let them choose their internet activities, their music to listen to, all of those influences are changing their mind because Satan wants to put a foothold in the generation to come and change their minds about God. He says to them, you evolved from nothing, there is no God, you are your own maker, you be what you wanna be. Gender doesn't matter. Can I get a witness? 
Gender doesn't matter. You be who you, what God made you means nothing. You be what you want to be. The state of Florida, in the state of Florida this, this week, maybe you've seen this in the news, that the legislature of Florida and Governor DeSantis have come under a lot of fire for passing a law. Crazy law. Crazy law. That, that says a teacher in kindergarten through third grade, six to nine-year-olds, cannot teach those children about the homosexual lifestyle and about gender fluidity and gender, gender identity. Crazy. Amen. And the world has gone crazy. What do you mean we can't tell your seven-year-old about homosexual lifestyles or choosing their gender? Not to get too close to home, but one of the greatest opponents of that law is the Disney Corporation. And so if you think every single day the woke writers at Disney aren't creating cartoons to change the mind of your children, you're blind, man. It's exactly what they're doing. It's not like it was when you and I were kids. Now, I'm just simply saying it's a, it's, a, it's a battle for the mind of the Christian. It's a battle for the mind of the unbeliever. It's a battle for the mind of the next generation. And you should understand that we are living with a satanic assault on the mind. And so here's what Paul says, back to Ephesians chapter number six. You say, Pastor, you read Ephesians six and we haven't even been there. Well, I only read half a verse. Give me a break, right? <laughs> So in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, look, if you're going to live in this world where there's a battle for your mind, then you need to put on a helmet. You need to protect your head, protect your mind. He says, take unto you the helmet of salvation. Now the word helmet, only used in one other place in the New Testament, and we'll, we'll turn there in just a minute, but this, the word helmet means a covering, it's a guard. It's a protector. It's like those football players in 1905 that needed a helmet. It's this covering for your head. But he calls it the helmet of salvation. Salvation means my deliverance, to be rescued, to be saved. So Paul says, if you're going to win the battle for your mind, you need to cover your mind with salvation. Right? You need to protect your mind with salvation. How do we do that? What does that mean? What's exactly Paul's point? Let me suggest a couple of things and then we're going to be done. How do, how do we guard our minds with salvation? Write it down. Number one, I want you to get in the practice, putting on the helmet, by recalling the facts of your salvation. Recalling the facts. You know, the mind is the domain of the facts. It's where what's factual matters. It's, it's our understanding, it's our, our grasp of what is true. And if you're going to protect your mind, then you should regularly recall what is true about your salvation. Because Satan's going to spend every day lying to you about your salvation and its result or the lack thereof. So you need to recall it. It's, 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 um, it's like when you were in grade school and you were memorizing your multiplication tables. Right? And you just needed to revisit it often so that it would just be there all the time. You would just always know that seven times three is 21. You just, it's not that you got to compute it, you just memorize it. You just know it. That is right, isn't it? Seven times three is 21. Yes. <laughs> Scared myself for a minute. 
but you need to revisit it often. And so you should recall the facts of your salvation. Begin with the specifics of Christ's work on the cross. What does it mean? It means that Christ lived a perfect life for my sins because I couldn't. He lived a perfect life in my place. And Christ died offering the perfect sacrifice for my sins. And Christ has risen from the dead. Those are the facts of my salvation, right? It's all in Christ. And he did it. You should recall his work, his work on the cross. Secondly, you should remember and recall how Jesus drew you to saving faith. Think about it. Be mindful of how, the, how that you were drawn to believe in Christ. Maybe it was through family. You grew up in a family where you learned about Jesus. Do you know, listen, can I stop for just a second? The next time I hear some, you know, 20 or 30 year old say, well, I was taken to church every time I, every Sunday I had to go to church, man, I'm just done with it. I don't ever go to go to church again. You know what I'm gonna say to them? Get over yourself. Praise God for a mother and father who took you and put you. Do you know how many people have never been in church in their lives that are clueless to the gospel? And God gave you a mama and a daddy that would put you under the sound of the gospel. You ought to thank him instead of complaining about it and saying you're never going to go back again. Amen. If you won't say it, I will. (laughs) How'd God bring you to the gospel? How'd he bring you to faith? Well, maybe family, maybe friends, maybe some friend told you about Jesus. Maybe you sat in a, in, a, in a boring Sunday school class and looked at flannel graph every Sunday and you remember Bible stories from little flannel Moses and Noahs and the apostles by the flannel graph felt Sea of Galilee. <laughs> What's Moses doing at the Sea of Galilee anyway? But remember it because you got taught. Recall it. How that he drew you to faith. How that he convinced you of your sin. How that he tenderly said, I love you, but you're a wreck. (laughs) How he tenderly made you know that you're a sinner. And how that he gently drew you to trust him. Remember his grace in your life. And remember his faithfulness. Think about the gifts that you've received since your salvation. The indwelling Holy Spirit, the word of God to teach you the church, to be your fellowship and your help and your, and your guide. Christ, who has never left you and never forsaken you. Here's the point. If you're gonna live every day with an onslaught against your mind, and so take what is true of your salvation, Christ's work, Christ's grace in your life, Christ's faithfulness to you, and just wrap those truths around your mind. And they create this shield, this helmet, so that when the lies of the enemy come, they're hitting up against the truth of what Christ has done for me. Do you understand? Wrap it around your head. Here's the second way that you do it. Not only do you need to recall the facts of your salvation, but then rejoice in the hope of your salvation. I'm gonna ask you to turn one last time to 1 Thessalonians, just a few pages forward. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter number five. It'll be five or six pages forward in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse number eight. It's the only other place where the word helmet is used in the Bible. And it's actually Paul using this metaphor of the armor again, but in Thessalonians, he applies them a little bit differently. In chapter five and verse number eight of 1 Thessalonians, he says, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, not the breastplate of righteousness as in Ephesians, but the breastplate 
breastplate of faith and love and a helmet, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Do you see the little nuance change? In Ephesians, he says, put on the helmet of salvation. In, in uh, Thessalonians, he says, put on the helmet, the hope of salvation. Well, the hope of salvation is simply the fact of my future expectation of what Christ is going to fully accomplish. It's the promise that, that Paul says, he who, has began a good, he who has begun a good work in you will perform it. He's going to complete it. And so know this, one day Christ is going to come and the work is going to be completed. One day he's going to call us home and the work is going to be completed. We're going to be, to be made fully like Jesus and we're going to be in his presence and salvation is going to be fully conceived and wrapped up and finished in our lives and we will be in eternity. That is my hope. It is my assurance that that's going to happen. You look at my life today, you're going to see some pockets and some places that don't look much like Jesus. You're going to, you're going to, you might encounter an attitude on a, on a bad day where it's, I'm not really reflecting Christ very well. You're, you're, you're going to see a man who, just like all of you, is going to struggle with this and that and stumble along the way. But here's what I know. I know this to be true. One day, he will complete his work in me, and I'll never stumble again, and there will be no more pockets of struggle and sin and brokenness in my life and no more bad attitudes because I will be like him. It's his promise, and that promise is my hope that it's going to be completed. And Paul says, if you want to win the battle in your mind, get up every morning knowing I'm going to wrap salvation around my mind to protect my mind, my head. And part of what I'm putting in my, my mind this morning is Christ is going to finish his work in me. Christian, hear me. Every single day, there's a battle for your mind. Every day. Lost person, if you've never trusted Christ, hear me. Satan is working every day to keep you from Christ. Every single moment to blind you to the gospel. Parents, grandparents, hear me. Every single day, Satan is working to change the mind of your children, your grandchildren, to, ch to cause them to think in ways that do not align with God's word and what's true. And if we're gonna win this battle, we better put the salvation of God around our brains.